Good morning, Graham. Good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 14, please. Thank you. And uh, this morning from Romans 14 and 15, we begin a, a three-part series on the subject, When Christians Do Not Agree. We're going to talk about three categories of how people view things, absolute truth, convictions, and preferences. So the passage that we're going to look at these next three weeks, Romans 14 through 15, 7, teach us how the believers can disagree in an agreeable way to the glory of God. The old saying is, how great to dwell with Christians in glory, but sometimes now it's a different story. So a dad heard the kids squabbling out in the yard, and he went out to stop them from arguing. They said, oh, dad, it's okay, we're just playing church. Okay, well, that doesn't happen here at Graham. But there's other churches out there that need to hear this kind of stuff. Well, what we're going to do this morning is look at the first section of Romans 14 on this whole issue of being judgmental. What's the scriptures really teach about that? Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about uh, not offending others and then finally following the example of Jesus. And I think for that third service, if there are questions that people want to submit ahead of time or just ask during the service, we might have a little Q&A time over this whole issue of debatable and uh, uh, debatable subjects. All right, before we read the passage, we begin by understanding that, first of all, the Bible teaches there's absolute truth. Now, truth is always absolute. It never changes. But um, we're talking about Christians believing in absolute truths that are essential to salvation and Christian living. Early in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had a conflict described in Galatians because Peter was eating with a group called the Judaizers that were teaching that to be a Christian, you not only follow Jesus, but you have to use the Old Testament diet and be circumcised. And uh, Paul stood up and corrected him in front of everybody and said, listen, we're saved by grace through faith alone. And that was an absolute issue. In Early in the church, uh, in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had a dispute about whether they should take a guy named John Mark on a missions trip with them. And the Bible says that they differed so strongly that they parted their ways. That was an issue of conviction among those two men. Now the end of the story is because of the way they handle it, God blessed both teams that went out. And then in the book of Philippians, we see a case where people maybe were arguing just over preferences. There was a woman named Eurodia and her friend named Syntyche, They had different personalities and backgrounds, and they got in an argument. And Paul had to write and say, hey, 
For the sake of Christ, could you settle your disputes? Now, I want us to understand that convictions are things that uh, good, spirit-filled, growing Christians could differ on. And yet the passage is going to say they both can be right. Preferences, however, are simply beliefs that come out of our background, that come out of our experience, often what we're comfortable with. It's been attributed to different people, but probably Augustine, the great African pastor, wrote, in essentials, let there be unity. In non-essentials, let there be liberty. In all things, let there be charity. Pretty good saying, don't you think? Yeah, you're, you're right to agree because for 2,000 years this has been uh, an agreed upon good saying. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning is, is going to teach us by God's grace how we can learn to disagree in an agreeable way about disputable matters. I'm reading the Word of God Romans 14, 1 through 11. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, a second illustration, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, and finally, verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, this section on practical living and how we deal kindly with minor differences follows Paul's essential teaching in Romans chapters 1 through 3 on sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. In chapters 4 through 8, he talks about salvation. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus 
Christ. And then he talks about service and how we should dedicate our bodies out of gratitude to the Lord and then work with other believers. I've had the privilege the last few weeks of talking to several attenders here at Graham Community Church that have not yet received the Lord Jesus as Savior. They're learning, but they've not yet been born again. And I always want this to be a church that's very clear that salvation precedes service and that grace results in gratitude. So what I have here are nine summary biblical principles from uh, this passage of Scripture. And I suspect we could get through all nine by 2 o'clock today. No, we're not going to do all nine. We're going to do the first three from this passage. If you'd like to look ahead and have some of the Bible references that I'll be using, there's a a yellow sheet on the back table out there that... um, has the nine points that we're going to work on in the the next uh, two weeks after today. Point number one, we are not to judge others on disputable matters. First verse says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Then at the end, uh, Paul says, Let us therefore stop passing judgment on one another. Now, does this mean that the Christian never judges or discerns between what's right and wrong? Probably the favorite verse of the world is judge not, lest you be judged. And and, and so if you're talking to somebody about, you know, you can be born again and have your sins forgiven, they're like, don't you be judging me, man. The context of that, though, was Jesus is talking to Pharisees that were judgmental in their attitude. And he said, with the judgment that you make, so you yourselves will be judged. So we are not to be judgmental in attitude, judgmental people, but we are to discern in judging what is right. If you maybe grew up in an environment or a home that was critical or judgmental, you may have to relearn how to think and be gracious in this area. Jesus said, do not judge by appearances. One translation says, do not judge by mere appearance, but judge with right judgment. In other words, get the facts. Don't be judgmental in your nature and jump to conclusions but judge with a right judgment. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, the spiritual person judges all things. In other words, the, the, the Christian lady who is spiritual is discerning. Is this appropriate? The Christian guy is going, is this right? Or is this wrong? Because the true Christian is concerned with truth and error, with what is sinful and what is right what really counts in life, etc. But in debatable areas in which Christian people may disagree, we are not to judge. It's what we just read. Now, 
We read two examples of uh, debatable subjects that the early church was struggling with. Uh, One issue was, is one day better than another? Here are Jewish people that have been born again. They put their faith in Messiah Christ. And yet, they come from a background in which God had taught them the Sabbath is a unique, special day. That's because, first of all, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, He ceased. Hebrew word, Shabbat, Sabbath. And as they follow Christ, they realize that He also was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. We would calendar equivalent to say that Sabbath, Old Testament, was Saturday, Sunday, Sunday what we call the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection. And these faithful Jewish people that have become Christians are very serious about there are things you don't do on the Sabbath. And there's things you do on the Sabbath. And uh, we will follow special Sabbath days. Now, Paul says, and then there's others who say every day is the Lord's Day. Okay, the sun came up this morning, so we're, we're, it's easy to say this is the day the Lord has made. But whether it's gloomy, Michigan, February, or sunny, every day is the day which the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. And Paul says, there are Christians here who says that one day is special to the Lord, and he says, that attitude praises God. And he says, there's other Christians that are saying, every day is the Lord's day. That attitude praises God. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And then he uses a second illustration of eating. Now, the New Testament Christians who were all initially Jews before a flood of Gentiles were converted. They didn't eat pork on their pizza. They weren't hot dog eating people. And they had this strict diet that they were careful to abide by. And uh, their attitude, even as Christians, was we're going to honor God by continuing to eat a right attitude. Uh, excuse me, a right We're going to eat whatever we want. Others had the attitude, you know, Jesus said that all foods are declared to be clean if they are eaten with thanksgiving. He did say that. And so Paul is going to give the same conclusion as he gave about the differences on the day of the Sabbath. He says the one who eats, eats to glorify God. The one who refrains from eating, refrains from eating to the glory of God. And so the solution, he says, is that we can differ on these convictions because ultimately we're not the judge of another brother or sister in Christ, but that Christ is the judge And we shall give an account to God. So, uh, beyond the Lord's day, what we do and what we don't, the dietary things, lots of issues, a plethora of issues today that uh, sincere 
people have convictions over and they think they're right, no one else outside of their feelings are right. You know, these might include issues of Bible translation or worship styles. Sometimes people that come to church dressed up say, we dress up for God. We wear our best. And others say, ah, but we're, we're authentic. We, we come as we are. We're casual. People fight over types of schooling for their children. But if the goal is to equip them to live for Jesus and to be a witness for others, it's all about the attitude. Wedding attendance, people fight these days about, should I go to this or should I not? And the use of alcohol, I'll just skip that one. Actually, it's a big issue. If you go over to, you know, I, I remember a story. Mrs. Billy Graham went over to lead a Bible study in Germany, and there the ladies had beer and Bible study. It was kind of their slogan, nothing better than beer and Bible study. took her a little bit of adjustment to that. I've been in several countries where they, they served me just wine to drink. I'm like, no Mountain Dew? What's with you guys? And, and, and so in that case, my conscience was clear, though for the sake of my students and uh, generally here in the States, I, I'm a total abstainer. But now the Bible doesn't teach that uh, all alcohol use is wrong. It teaches that the abuse of alcohol is always wrong. And then it counsels us that wise leaders are not to be involved in the use of alcohol, and it talks about the different pitfalls or whatever. But in a debatable subject like this, we must first of all discern what's the Bible teach, and then secondly, we make sure that we don't have a judgmental attitude. A pastor said within the last few years, politics is just tearing my church apart because people have got sidetracked and to get emotional about these preferences and maybe convictions about political issues. May I say that Graham Community Church is never going to glory in politics, but in the cross of Christ Jesus. And, and the list is endless of debatables today. So how do we deal with these things? First of all, as the apostle tells us, by not being judgmental, in debatable subjects. Again, I want to be clear. A debatable subject is not an absolute truth like the Bible is the Word of God or Jesus is the Savior. It's a subject which because of differing backgrounds, differing taste, differing levels of maturity, that spirit-filled Christians, growing Christians, could differ on. The goal is to learn to disagree in an agreeable way to the glory of God. All right, so that's that first principle about judgment. Number two, verse three says, God has accepted them. I love verse four. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, the servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. That, that, that lady that you have questions about, that man that maybe differs in area of conviction with you, if they've come to the cross, the cross makes them acceptable to God. 
Amen? And so th this is uh, the blessed truth of unconditional acceptance in Christ. Let me tell you why God loves you. If you had a terrible beginning to the month of February, spiritually or in any way, well, then God probably doesn't love you anymore. No, sarcasm. God is unconditional in his love because he is immutable, unchangeable. And justification says that if you receive Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness and accepted in the beloved one. Who's that? Jesus. So in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And the Father loves you as he loves Christ because you are in Christ. I, I, I never thought that I needed to hear again uh, about the love of God, but I, I've been reading a, a, a book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which is a rewrite of a Puritan thought about the love that Christ has for us. It's been so reassuring and so comforting to me. We don't judge others on the area of disputable things because God is the judge and he says he has accepted them. All right, the third point from the passage that we read, we're not about preparing others. We should be about preparing ourselves to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now the unsaved person who has rejected the grace of God and does not have their sins forgiven by the blood of Christ will stand uh, in the final uh, judgment that, that is the last judgment. Uh, Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it the whole earth appears before them, whose ever name was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The books were opened to show every thought, every motive, every deed, and it becomes evident to the universe why people will not be in heaven. Because grace was not responded to with gratitude that changed the life. That's the great white throne judgment for the unsaved. But Christians, when time turns to eternity, we will stand before what's called the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ, to give account according to how we've lived as Christians in this life. Now, Christ still accepts us unconditionally, but there will be a difference of reward in heaven between the dedicated, self-sacrificing servant of Christ and the selfish self-indulgent, lazy Christian. Here's the key text. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. You say, Jim, then how could we be happy in heaven? Well, we'll all receive different levels of reward. Uh, 
each, every person that has received Christ has glorified him by professing in one way or another, by mouth, heart, baptism, like we're going to do in two weeks, uh, uh, even to being a martyr, to being a witness. And every true believer will receive some gift from God. Uh, Paul said, each man shall receive his reward, uh, or each will receive his reward from God. But many are going to see that that which they invested their life in was useless. It's here. Each one's work will become manifest, that means openly seen, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you throw, you throw wood and hay and straw and stubble in the fire. Boom, it's gone. But uh, gold and silver and gems, just purified, they endure. A picture of the contrast of the life that we can live right now for which we will give an account before God. In heaven we will all glorify God. But in heaven, we will not all be equally rewarded. But whatever crowns of reward we receive, Revelation 4, 11 says, we will cast them at his feet and say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, uh, for it is you who have created all things, and for your glory they were and do exist. Now, I'm going to just quickly hit the headlines of what we're going to do in the next couple weeks. Uh, number four point that we'll start with next week is, in debatable things, what is right for one person may be wrong for another. Now, I'm not teaching that sometimes it's right to lie or lust or uh, steal, and that other times it's not. We're talking about debatable things. And after talking about the day of one person uh, uh, holds one day as to be different, and others say it's all the Lord's day. One person does, abstains from eating to the glory of God. The other person eats to the glory of God. Paul says, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Next principle in the passage, do not offend others with your liberty, the stumbling block principle. We'll talk about what this means and what it doesn't mean next week principle six is we are to work for peace and building up other christians what a powerful verse let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification seven we are not to please we we are to please others and not ourselves and the ultimate example of that is for even Christ did not please himself. In the area of debatables and opinion, Christ dealt differently with different people because he understood the difference between biblical absolutes unchanging and then what comes out of our background 
and preferences. The final principle, and I'll close the service after communion with this, is that we're to accept one another just as Christ accepted us in order to bring praise to God. Now, let's be very clear that Paul, when he's talking about debatable things, he's not talking about tolerance of sinful or forbidden things. He's speaking about our standing firm on the essentials of Christianity, holding our convictions and preferences in love and deference for others. So when Jude says, I urge you to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, it doesn't mean that we're to contend or fight for personal convictions or preferences, but foundational truth like the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is perfect God and perfect man. That He's born of a virgin, He lived a sinless life. That His death was a substitutionary death for sin. And that He literally rose again and He's coming again. Now we may not agree on the calendar of His coming and the timetables of the details, but uh, very important in the Word of God that we agree that someday our Lord will come again. So, what would be the results of uh, our applying these principles in the local church? Again, not that, not that we have an issue here at Graham with anybody, <laughs> but we are people. And, and to apply these things just for example, would be maybe we talk about music styles but not fight about it. We study subjects like marriage and divorce and remarriage with the goal of helping people to obey the Scriptures, not simply to foist our opinion on others. That, that we might uh, appreciate differing views on Sunday activities, levels of formality in the service, and, and on and on it could go. All right, here's the conclusion. We must not position ourselves on our emotions, our traditions, our background or personal comfort. Our views should be based on what does the Bible say? And here's a chapter and a half to give us specific guidance on this issue of debatable things. Most of us certainly have the tendency to develop our preferences and convictions based on our background and our past experiences or even our comfort. But the bottom line should be the Word of God. Paul confronted Peter in Galatians because he was giving the appearance that... Uh, Jewish people needed to continue to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. Well, that was a biblical absolute. Salvation is only by the grace of God. When Barnabas and Paul had such a dispute that they parted, it was an issue of conviction. And yet God blessed both of their missionary teams from that day on. When in the church of Philippi, two ladies were arguing, their names are Eurodia and Syntyche, and Paul said, put aside your differences and your opinions and get along. 
That was just unfortunately a squabble based on preferences and emotions. As I was thinking this week about the Lord's Supper and communion, I remembered that um, the Apostle Paul taught that Christians should come together and in the early church every week they would study the word and then they'd eat together. They'd have an agape, a love feast. And in the midst of that meal, they'd stop and take the pita bread and break it off and say, this reminds us of the death of Christ. They, they would drink that which was very lightly fermented wine and they, they would drink and remember, this reminds us of the cleansing blood of Christ. But as time went on, some people in the community began to understand they could go into the uh, agape feast and they could get as much pita bread as they wanted. They, they could get as much drink as they wanted. And so people started coming out of gluttonous desires. People started coming to get drunk. You say, where do you get that from? It's right in 1 Corinthians 11. And so the Apostle Paul said, hey, don't you have houses to eat in? Come here for the right reasons. Now, from that phrase, don't you have houses to eat in, some denominations have taken the position that it's wrong to eat or drink in a church gathering. And so I know people that uh, they just feel like uh, having your cup of coffee or, or, or eating a bagel between services is a wrong thing to do. Sounds like a pretty fun thing to me to do, but uh, that's not my conviction. And so I don't argue with these people who say, hey, you have houses to eat. I think it's a misinterpretation of what Paul's emphasizing, but um, that's how sometimes denominations start or people have these biblical convictions. How are we going to deal with it? By not being judgmental, by accepting one another, as Christ accepts them to the glory of God. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he said, take, take and eat this in remembrance of me. He took the wine and said, take, drink, but do it in remembrance of me. And when Paul gave his detailed instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, but also understand two conditions. Number one, before you receive communion, you need to receive Christ. Just simply confess that you're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Second condition, this is for sincere Christians who are concerned about our sin. And so every day of the week should be a time for self-examination. But the Lord's Supper should be a time in which in remembering His death and His love for us, out of gratitude we should confess our sins. Or ask the Holy Spirit to help us to do what we need to do to make that apology or return that money, or do whatever it is we need to do. 
Proverbs says, he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it shall receive mercy. Or in the familiar words of 1 John 1, 9, if we as Christians confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. And in this quiet moment, I would ask that you would just give thanks to Jesus for His sacrifice for you. And that you would do any business with God that the Holy Spirit would have you do in confessing sin. Maybe it's over the fact that you've been bent out of shape over a debatable thing. And you say, Lord, help me. Help me to follow the Scriptures in debatable things. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse from all sin. We pray that not only in these brief moments, but every day of our lives, your Holy Spirit would reveal to us how that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our heart might be acceptable in your sight. Please, in Jesus' name, amen.